Welcome to episode 4 of LeMay's Inferno here on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM, a seven-part documentary series covering the final months of World War II in the Pacific Theater. I'm your host, Carter McNish. Previously, we discussed the two American offensives against Japan, one by sea and the other by air. On the sea, American soldiers, sailors, and marines inched their way closer and closer to Japan, one island at a time, most recently taking the islands of Luzon, Leyte, and Iwo Jima, all with heavy losses. By air, the B-29s under the command of Curtis LeMay began raining fire from the sky on Japanese cities in an attempt to bring about the surrender of Japan, burning out the heart of Tokyo, Nagoya, Osaka, and Kobe in what became known as the Great Fire Blitz. This time, we turn our attention once more to the seaward route as we discuss the battle for the penultimate stop on the road to Tokyo, Okinawa. Lying only 350 miles from Japan's southernmost home island of Kyushu, the island of Okinawa would be the last stop on the road to Tokyo before the invasion of Japan itself. The island was one of many in the Ryukyu chain and had been under Japanese control since the 1600s, and it would be the first island taken with a large, entirely Japanese population. As far as the commanders on either side were concerned, Okinawa was Japan. What's more, Okinawa, being so close to Japan, was well within range of aircraft based on Kyushu, and the Japanese were intent on using this capability to the fullest. The Americans wanted to control Okinawa for a number of reasons. Firstly, they wanted to convert the mostly flat center of the island into a gigantic airbase, from which thousands of aircraft that would soon be arriving from Europe could attack Japan. Secondly, they wanted to secure Okinawa and its surrounding islands as a protected anchorage from which they could launch the eventual amphibious invasion of Kyushu. For these two reasons, Okinawa was invaluable to the American war effort, and these facts were not lost in the Japanese, who had invested much into the defense of the island. The Japanese were present in force. Over 100,000 battle-hardened Japanese troops manned its defenses under the command of Lieutenant General Mitsuru Ushijima. Ushijima was an experienced commander, having, like many Japanese commanders, fought in China for years before receiving the command of the Okinawa garrison. Although this would be his first time facing the Americans, he was battle-tested and experienced, and had begun studying up on American tactics from the moment he was given the command of the defense of Okinawa. He had looked on with particular interest at the battles of Iwo Jima and Luzon, noting that the best strategy was not to contest the beaches, and rather defend farther inland. To that end, he redeployed all of his units inland, away from the beaches, and out of the way of where the American artillery bombardment would fall before the landing would occur. Once more looking to Yamashita's defense of Luzon as an example, Ushijima realized that his chances of victory against a determined American assault were slim, and decided instead to find the best defensive terrain on the island and hold out until the end, taking down as many Americans as he could with him. General Ushijima looked around the island searching for a suitable location and settled on defending the southernmost portion of Okinawa. This area was dominated by a number of ridges running from east to west across the narrow width of the island. Constricted by the narrow width of Okinawa and being forced to either scale the steep ridges or be funneled into the narrow valleys that separated them, the Americans would face a similar predicament to the Persians at Thermopylae. Having found his location, General Ushijima ordered the construction of dozens of miles of tunnels and bunkers to add to the pre-existing network of natural caves that crisscrossed this portion of the island, connecting them to form one massive network through which he could move most of his troops and supplies without the threat of American air attack. With the protection these subterranean networks provided, along with the large amount of supplies the Japanese had stocked up beforehand, the Japanese troops defending Okinawa could theoretically hold out for over a year, inflicting many casualties on the Americans. Realistically, of course, that was all dependent on the one factor the Japanese could not control, the opposition. While Ushijima's prepared defenses were formidable, so too was the force that would come to destroy them. The invasion force would consist of over 1,600 ships carrying over 180,000 American troops. On top of the invasion force, another 350,000 naval personnel manned the ships of the fleet that would stay offshore and provide support for the invasion. The total force numbered over 600,000 personnel, the naval units hailing from America, Australia, Britain, New Zealand, and Canada, and the ground forces being entirely made up of Americans. The invasion fleet was and still is the largest fleet ever assembled. The invasion force carried within was even larger than the force that fought at Leyte, and was significantly larger than the force that landed in Normandy on D-Day. The naval component of the force was the U.S. 5th Fleet, 
commanded by Admiral Raymond Spruance. Spruance was an experienced naval commander. In fact, he had been the on-scene commander during the Battle of Midway, given permission by Chester Nimitz to handle the tactical planning of that battle. The 5th Fleet was divided into two groups, the first being the support ships carrying the men and supplies for the invasion, along with their escorts, and the second being the accompanying carrier task forces. The carrier forces were under the direct command of Admiral Spruance, while Spruance gave Vice Admiral R.K. Turner the responsibility of managing the invasion support ships. The carrier force was further split into two task forces. Task Force 58, led by famed carrier commander Mark Mitcher, was composed of all of the American carriers present, all 17 of them, carrying 1,100 aircraft, along with six battleships, 13 cruisers, and 58 destroyers to escort them. Then, there was the new arrival, Task Force 59, known to history as the British Pacific Fleet, composed of 10 aircraft carriers, along with their supporting battleships, cruisers, and destroyers. This would be the first time a British fleet played a significant role in the Pacific theater, their naval forces having been primarily tied up with the Atlantic and Mediterranean theaters up to this point. The land force was the U.S. 10th Army, a mixed Army and Marine Corps unit under the command of Brigadier General Simon Bolivar Buckner Jr., the son of a Confederate Civil War general and former governor of Kentucky. The 10th Army was composed of three Marine divisions, the 1st, 2nd, and 6th, and four Army divisions, the 7th, 27th, 77th, and 96th. It was the largest force yet to invade an island of this size, and General Buckner would need every last one of those men to take it. The American planners, much like General Ushijima had done, decided to take advantage of the island's natural geography in their planning, assuming the Japanese would try to pull the same trick they had done on Iwo Jima, namely, waiting for the Americans to pile up on the beach before opening fire on the resulting traffic jam, the plan for the invasion of Okinawa would involve a rapid thrust inland, making sure that units spent as little time on or near the beaches as possible. The force would land on the flat terrain that dominated the middle section of the island, the island being much longer from north to south than it was from west to east. Then, advance across the narrow width of the island in order to split the Japanese defense in two. Once this had been done, the 10th Army would split into two groups. The three marine divisions would advance north and clear out the defenders there, while the four army divisions would advance south and clear that section of the island. The American plan was a good one, and would have worked on any other Japanese-held island, but unfortunately for them, General Ushijima's plan had pulled the carpet right out from under them, as he did not plan on contesting the beaches at all, and had instead taken up positions on the southern portion of the island, as the army would find out later, much to their shock and dismay. The Americans once again were overconfident in their plan, not counting on any Japanese trickery, and they would once again suffer dearly for it. The invasion force set out for Okinawa early in March, arriving off the Ryukyus later in the month. The first stages of the operation, which was codenamed Operation Iceberg, would not involve Okinawa at all. Instead, Marines and Army troops landed on a series of smaller islands around Okinawa in order to make a protected anchorage for the supporting vessels of the 5th Fleet. One of these islands, Keisei, was only 11 miles from Okinawa, and from there, batteries of American 155mm Long Tom artillery guns could shell all of southern Okinawa. These guns would prove a useful addition to the firepower of the fleet in the battle to come. With the preliminary landings complete and a safe anchorage secured, the time for the invasion of Okinawa had come. Early on Easter morning, April 1st, 1945, the fleet suddenly and without warning began pummeling Okinawa with everything it had. Dozens of battleships began throwing shells that weigh as much as school buses at the island, while scores of cruisers and dozens of destroyers joined in. Dozens of rocket ships moved in closer to shore and began to launch salvos of over a hundred rockets at a time in concentrated barrages of the island. As the fleet continued to pummel the beach areas, the seven divisions of the invasion force boarded their landing craft and, under the cover of their artillery, began making their way toward the shore. The plan called for six of the seven divisions to make the landing, the last division making a feigned landing farther south of the intended landing location in an attempt to draw the Japanese forces away from the main invasion beaches. The defenders did not take the bait, and over a hundred thousand American troops landed in good order in only a matter of hours, encountering no resistance. The GIs were astonished to find the whole area abandoned, save for a few of Okinawa's 300,000 strong civilian population. By the end of the day, the Americans had cut the island in two, still not having encountered any Japanese resistance, except for a sniper here or there. Both of the airfields that were on this center portion of the island were captured, the two main objectives of the first day's operation. 
The next day, as planned, the last division landed on the island, for real this time, and the army and marines split up in order to make their northward and southward advances. The landscape of Okinawa was nothing like the Americans had ever fought on before in the Pacific War. War correspondent Ernie Pyle described the landscape in one of his accounts. Since this island is the closest to Japan we've landed on, and since we seem to feel this really is Japan rather than just some far outpost, I'll try to describe to you what it looks like. Actually, it doesn't look a great deal different from most of America. In fact, it looks much more like America than anything the Marines have seen for the last three years. The climate is temperate rather than tropical, and so is the vegetation. There are tropical-like trees on and near the beaches. I think they're pandanus bushes. But there are also many trees of the fir family with horizontal limbs. The country over which my regiment passed during the first two days was cultivated. It rose gradually from the sea and was formed into small fields. It didn't look at all unlike Indiana in late summer, when things have started to turn dry and brown, except that the fields were much smaller. The wheat, which looks just like ours, is dead ripe in the fields now. The marines are cutting it with sickles. In other fields are cane and sweet potatoes. Each field has a ditch around its edge, and dividing the fields are little ridges about two feet wide. On top of the ridges are paths where the people walk. All through the country are narrow dirt lanes, and now and then a fairly decent gravel road. As you get inland, the country becomes rougher. In the hills there is less cultivation and more trees. It really is a pretty country. We had read about what a worthless place Okinawa was, but I think most of us have been surprised by how pretty it is. While the island was and is certainly a beauty to behold, that was in stark contrast to what was about to occur there. As the army divisions advanced south, they saw a ridge on the horizon. As they approached, nothing seemed out of the ordinary until, when they finally came within range of the Japanese guns, all hell broke loose. Bullets, mortar rounds, and artillery shells came raining down, fired from hidden positions in and around the ridge. The Americans had been wondering where the Japanese were, and now that they were being shot at, they knew. The ridge they had encountered, known to the Japanese as Kakazu Ridge, but soon dubbed Cactus Ridge by the GIs, rose 280 feet from the coastal plain, and from its summit, Japanese troops had a panoramic view of the whole plain upon which the American landing had taken place. The ridge ran from east to west across the entire width of the island, only breaking in a couple spots where water had carved gullies through. There were only two ways to move past the ridge, either over the top or through the narrow gullies that cut between the sections of it and the Japanese had made both options dreadful. The army troops began making assaults on the ridge, only to be thrown back each time with heavy casualties. Meanwhile, in the north, the Americans were making easy work of the rest of the island. Save for a sniper here or a straggler there, they had encountered no resistance. Soon they began receiving requests from General Buckner, in overall command, to send reinforcements to the army in the south. The Marines laughed it off saying that the army just wasn't as used to fighting the Japanese as the Marines were, and that they'd be there soon enough once they were finished wiping the floor with the Japanese in the northern part of Okinawa. The Marines advanced rapidly northward, it taking them a little over a week to reach the northern tip of the island. The only significant patch of resistance they encountered was a small Japanese force holed up on a peninsula jutting out from the island, which proved difficult to tackle. However, with their prior combat experience and expertise in fighting the Japanese, the Marines would defeat them soon enough. Whereas the marines in the north measured their progress in the thousands of yards or even a mile or two each day, the army in the south was forced to measure their progress in inches. Against the entrenched Japanese on Kakazu Ridge, there was little the army could do except for attack over and over again, hoping that at least once they would make a breakthrough. On April 19th, after over two weeks of no gains, the army launched another offensive. 324 guns including some of the 155mm long toms based on Kaisei, opened fire on the ridge pummeling it with thousands of rounds a minute. Battleships and cruisers offshore joined in, the two sets of guns acting together making it the largest and heaviest artillery barrage of the Pacific War. 650 Navy and Marine Corps aircraft flew overhead, dropping napalm and high-explosive bombs in the Japanese positions, and strafing anyone who dared appear on the surface. As the artillery faded away, American soldiers began advancing up the slopes of Kakazu Ridge along the entire front line, taking heavy fire from Japanese mortars and artillery. Upon reaching the summit, they attempted to move down the reverse slope, but were ambushed by hundreds of Japanese defenders who had taken cover there so as to avoid the direct American artillery support. Close quarters combat ensued, as the Americans on one side of the summit and the Japanese on the other lobbed grenades at each other, sometimes hundreds being thrown at any one moment. The shower of shrapnel and debris kicked up by the grenades caused many ugly wounds, and soon enough, without direct artillery support and sufficient reinforcements, the army troops were forced to disengage and retreat back to the bottom of the ridge. 
This process repeated over and over again as the days crawled by. General Buckner, in overall command, was growing desperate, so he decided to change strategies. He knew that his troops needed heavier support and more reinforcements, but the terrain of the ridge made it impossible for tanks to keep up with the infantry in the assault, and only a few spots on the ridge were scalable by tanks. Buckner decided, instead, to try and advance through one of the gullies that passed between the ridge, where it would be easier for tanks and reinforcements to be brought up. The attack was launched with dozens of Sherman tanks, some equipped with long-range flamethrowers, with infantry support attempting to run up the gauntlet and emerge on the other side of Kakazoo Ridge. At the same time, a large infantry assault directly up the ridge took place in order to draw Japanese fire away from the armored spearhead. The tanks advanced down the narrow gorge along the road and came under fire from Japanese field guns and mortars, the infantry supporting them taking small arms fire from hidden Japanese infantrymen. The tanks and their supporting infantry actually managed to break through the gauntlet, surprisingly, suffering heavy casualties. But upon reaching the other side, they realized that the infantry that advanced directly up the ridge alongside them to support them had not also arrived. Alone, and easily able to be cut off, the tankers made the difficult decision to retreat back to their own lines and give up the hard-won gains, leaving behind 22 hulks of destroyed Shermans on the way. While the land battle had settled down into a stalemate, the naval battle for Okinawa had started off with a bang. On April 4th, after three days of no Japanese attacks, the fleet spotted a large flight of Japanese aircraft on radar. Immediately, the whole fleet rang out with alarms and bells as the tens of thousands of crewmen ran to their battle stations. Hundreds of fighters scrambled from the over two dozen carriers to intercept. The British Seafires, a modified version of the Spitfire designed for carrier service, were about to enter their first major dogfight with the Japanese, alongside their more experienced American counterparts. The British had been told stories, but now they were about to experience firsthand the horror of a major kamikaze attack. A few minutes passed by after the fighters scrambled and began climbing. Everyone on the decks of the hundreds of vessels scoured the sky looking for the telltale black dots of the Japanese planes silhouetted against the blue sky. Then, someone spotted it, began shouting frantically, and alerted the gunners. Soon, all eyes were fixed on the formation of over a hundred aircraft, their pilots on a one-way journey directly to paradise or so they had been told by their leaders and families back home. The planes, one by one, began diving on the formation as black puffs and smoke filled the sky as flak shells burst. These flak shells, unlike those used earlier in the war, had just finished development in the United States and used magnetic fuses instead of timed fuses. When the shell detected the magnetic field of a Japanese plane, it would send an electrical signal to the detonator and explode very close to the attacker. These new shells proved much more effective than their timed fuse predecessors, but the Japanese attackers only had to be lucky once, whereas the Americans had to be lucky every time. The planes dived on the fleet and while doing so selected their targets. The aircraft carriers were the biggest prize, as it only took one hit to the flight deck to render them inoperable, and it would be a major blow to the US fleet. Behind them, American and Commonwealth fighters swooped in, shooting down as many of the kamikazes as they could. Soon, the flak became too heavy as the planes descended, and the Allied fighters were forced to break off their attacks or risk being shot down by friendly fire. As the Japanese got closer and closer, the medium and short-ranged guns on the ships joined in. Words cannot express as well as photos and videos as to the volume of the fire being thrown at these kamikazes. The sky was practically darkened by the amount of flak detonations, and the air a light show on the scale of a Star Wars battle with the amount of red, white, and green tracers flying around. It was estimated later that only one out of every six kamikazes actually hit their target. But with a formation of over a hundred Japanese streaming toward the ships, it wasn't good enough. The remaining planes came screaming in at over 500 miles per hour, striking the ships and, fully loaded with fuel and bombs, exploded with devastating results. The fires burned white hot as crews rushed to douse the flames with carbon dioxide foam and seawater. Often it only took one kamikaze hit to put a ship out of action for months, forcing it to return to California or Hawaii for repairs. The kamikazes, as they were manned bombs, had a special kind of aura and horror about them in the eyes of the American sailors. While the kamikazes harried the fleet from the air, another threat was posed to strike at them from the sea. At 4 p.m. on April 6, 1945, a 10-ship task force departed from Tokuyama Harbor on the southern part of Honshu, bound for the open sea. It consisted of eight destroyers, a cruiser, and a battleship. This battleship was no ordinary battle wagon, however. It was the largest battleship ever built, the Yamato. When she entered service, she had been the pride of the most powerful navy in the Pacific. Now, 
She was one of the last remnants of that fleet, which had been devastated by the industrial might and strategic genius of the now-ascendant American Navy. With barely enough fuel to operate her ships, what remained of Japan's naval forces were resigned to being floating anti-aircraft platforms, helping to defend coastal cities against B-29s and raids from American carrier aircraft. However, the Yamato was not to suffer this same fate. Instead, the naval authorities decided to gather what fuel remained and give her a death befitting her status as the world's largest battleship. The plan was to sail from Japan at full speed, heading directly for Okinawa. Once Yamato arrived, she would beach herself on the shore and make of herself a huge steel coastal fort. Once beached, the Americans would not be able to sink her, instead having to storm the ship with infantry. Before this happened, though, the Navy hoped that Yamato's 18-inch guns could provide effective fire support for the Japanese troops on the island. It was a risky plan, but Japan's leaders thought it was better than letting Yamato go to waste. Yamato and her escort sailed at full speed through Japan's inland sea into the Bungo Strait, which separates Kyushu from Shikoku. Their hope was to reach Okinawa in the evening on the next day, the 7th of April. With the task force sailing at full speed, almost 30 knots, the American fleet would have less than 24 hours to find and sink her before she reached Okinawa. However, as she sailed through the Bungo Strait and into the open sea, two American submarines, USS Threadfin and USS Hackleback, spotted the force. Although the Japanese were sailing too fast for the submarines to attack them, the two ships shadowed the group, radioing their position, speed, and heading back to Spruance and the 5th Fleet sitting off Okinawa. With the sun already low in the sky, it was too late to attack the Yamato that day, but Spruance and his carrier commander Mark Mitcher were determined to sink her the moment the sun rose the next morning. When the sun rose on April 7th, it found Yamato and her escorts just south of the island of Kyushu, now beginning the mad dash towards Okinawa. The whole force was on high alert. While they did not know that they had been spotted the night prior, they did know that it was likely that they would be soon. Meanwhile, around 150 miles to the southeast, the 17 carriers of Task Force 58 were buzzing with activity. On the hangar decks, hundreds of Hellcats, Avengers, Corsairs, and Helldivers were being loaded with torpedoes, bombs, and rockets. The pilots in their ready rooms were briefed on the target. Every one of them wanted to be the one to sink Japan's largest battleship. And they all knew the trouble the ground forces would be in should they fail to do so. By mid-morning, the strike was ready. 386 aircraft from eight carriers. While Spruance wasn't using even half of his total force, using 386 planes was rightly deemed overkill. However, Spruance wasn't taking any chances. The fleet roared to life as the aircraft scrambled from the decks of their carriers and began organizing themselves in the skies above. Soon, the sky was filled with aircraft, and moments later, the formation turned north and began heading straight for Yamato. With the information provided by the submarines, the American planes knew exactly where to find it. Back on board Yamato, Admiral Ito, in command of the force, was alerted half an hour later that an American force had been spotted on radar. The task force immediately went to battle stations, and thousands of sailors rushed out onto the decks of the ships to man their guns. At noon, the first Americans appeared overhead. These were a group of Hellcats and Corsairs that had been sent out ahead of the main force to shoot down any Japanese fighters protecting Yamato. They soon found, though, that there were none. They let the rest of the aircraft know as much before going in for strafing runs. Minutes later, the other 350 aircraft arrived overhead and began setting up their bomb and torpedo runs. While the Hellcats and Corsairs strafed the fleet trying to kill or distract the Japanese gunners, the Avengers dived to the deck and began lining up their torpedo runs at wave height. The Japanese destroyers had formed a defensive circle around the Yamato in order to protect her from just such an attack, but the skilled Avenger pilots ducked and weaved through their fire and began torpedoing some of the destroyers to clear gaps, while others flew through those gaps and took a shot at the main prize. Puffs of black smoke from flak filled the sky as the Yamato and her escorts began making violent turns in order to dodge the torpedoes. Wave after wave of aircraft made their runs on the vessel, a number of them scoring direct hits with torpedoes. Meanwhile, the rocket-armed Hellcats and Corsairs began attacking the ships, lighting many fires on their decks and further reducing the number of operational defensive guns in the fleet. As this was happening, the Helldivers began dive-bombing the fleet, most targeting the Yamato. The Helldivers, against the recommendations of the plane's manufacturers, dived almost straight down instead of the normal 45-degree angle in order to ensure their bombs struck home. The pilots pulled nearly 10 Gs as they pulled out of their dives, many narrowly avoiding crashing into the sea. Their risks paid off, though, 
as the Yamato began to be racked with bomb hits. At 12.46, the destroyer Yahagi was hit by a torpedo in the engine room and slowed to a stop. The Americans pounced, finishing her off with six more torpedoes and 12 bombs. Another destroyer, the Isokaze, sailed over to help the stricken vessel, but it too was swarmed by the aircraft, heavily damaged, and sank some time later. At around this time, as the first attack wave was making its runs, the Yamato was struck by one torpedo and two bombs. But even as it successfully dodged many of the American bombs, more and more waves of aircraft were approaching. Shortly after 1 p.m., more planes arrived on the scene and began making their runs on Yamato. Between 1.20 and 2.15, the second and third waves made their attack, hitting Yamato with at least eight torpedoes and 15 bombs. Some claim more. Almost all of the torpedoes struck her on the port side, the resulting flooding making the ship list heavily to port. At 1.33 p.m., in order to try and keep the ship from capsizing, the captain ordered the crew to counter-flood and balance out the ship. They flooded the starboard engine and boiler rooms, which helped even out the ship a little, but also drowned over 300 of her sailors which were in those compartments, who had not been able to evacuate in time. The flooding also began to reduce her speed, making Yamato an easy target. Mark Mitcher, back on board his flagship USS Bunker Hill, along with the other carriers of Task Force 58, smelled blood in the water and ordered another attack wave of 110 aircraft to finish off the Yamato. Arriving half an hour later, 20 Avengers made the torpedo run, targeting the Yamato's rear compartments in order to jam the Yamato's rudder and prevent her from turning. The Yamato began a violent turn in order to avoid the torpedoes, but three struck home, jamming the rudder in a hard turn to port. From here on out, the Yamato would be sailing in wide circles. At 2.02 p.m., with the ship unavoidably sinking and unable to steer, Admiral Ito ordered the crew to abandon ship and the surviving vessels to return to base after rescuing the survivors. At 2.05 p.m., though, the captain of the Yamato learned of the Admiral's orders and told him he would not give the order to abandon ship. Admiral Ito, instead of fighting, retired to his captain, while Captain Aruga tied himself to the helm, both consigning themselves to the same fate as their ship. Without an order to abandon ship, the crew struggled in vain to try and save her, but with the list growing by the second, it became clear that the ship was about to capsize. Some of the crew managed to jump into the sea and swim away before at 2.20 p.m., Yamato finally rolled over and capsized, many of the men still inside beginning to drown. Then, three minutes later, the ship suddenly and violently exploded as the fires had reached the powder magazines. Fragments of the ship were shot out for over a mile as the now weakened structure of the vessel began to break apart and slip beneath the waves. The remaining American planes watched in awe and cheered as Japan's greatest battleship suffered a horrible and inglorious death. It is ironic that the Yamato, a ship designed to prove the value of battleships in modern naval combat, was sunk by aircraft, the very weapon it was said to be impervious to. The sinking of the Yamato made crystal clear what had been clear from the very start of the Pacific War. The age of the battleship was over. The age of the aircraft carrier had come. While the sinking of the Yamato was good news indeed, it did not boost the spirits of the 10th Army back on Okinawa, as they had still not broken through the Japanese defenses along the Kakazu Ridge. They had been on Okinawa for nearly a month, and for as much time had been throwing themselves repeatedly at the ridge with no gains. What's more, the Japanese defenders launched multiple counterattacks to slow the American preparations. Throughout the rest of April, the Americans whittled away at the Japanese defenses, gaining patches of ground across the front, but achieving no significant breakthroughs. By the end of April, the Japanese defenses on Kakazu Ridge were worn and battled down, their defenders exhausted and nearly out of supplies. General Ushijima, realizing the position was no longer tenable, ordered his forces to withdraw from the Kakazu Line and retreat to a new defensive line about a mile further back. This line was called the Shuri Line, as the center of the line passed just north of Old Shuri Castle, which, in the tunnels underneath, Ushijima had made his headquarters. He reasoned that his men would be better used defending this unused second line with fresh supplies than they would be in the bombed-out tunnels and caves of Kakazu. The western side of the new line was put atop three low hills which together formed a triangle whose tip was facing the oncoming Americans. The hills were naturally spaced out such that if any one hill was attacked, the other two could provide supporting fire, a formidable position. The center of the line stretched across another series of ridges like Kakazu before, except these were even more difficult to attack. In many places, the slopes gave way to rocky cliffs, unscalable unless a ladder or rope was dropped down from the top. 
sitting on top of the ridge were the ruins of an ancient castle, which provided excellent protection and would help to break up the American formations as they crossed the ridge. Finally, on the eastern side of the line was a large hill, nicknamed Conical Hill by the Americans. Its steep, wooded slopes, crisscrossed by low ridges extending outward from the summit, were a troubling natural obstacle. All throughout the new line were yet more caves and tunnels, allowing the Japanese troops to move from section to section unseen and impervious to air attack. The Americans were in for another, even more difficult challenge. As the 1st of May dawned, American patrols scouting Kakazu Ridge encountered surprisingly little resistance. It soon became apparent that the Japanese were no longer there, and within hours the American forces were on the move southward, advancing cautiously, trying to find where the Japanese had gone. While advancing, the Americans found many booby traps, obstacles, and many other things left behind by the retreating Japanese to make life difficult for the land's new owners. Even scarier than the unmanned traps, though, were the stragglers, men who were either too scared, too brave, or too wounded to evacuate. American army troops, now joined by the Marines, who had come to reinforce them after securing the undefended northern part of Okinawa, never knew what to expect from each encounter. War correspondent Ernie Pyle wrote of one such experience. It was mid-forenoon, and we had just reached our new bivouac area after a march of an hour and a half. The boys threw off their packs, sat down on the ground, and took off their helmets to mop their perspiring foreheads. We were in a small grassy spot at the foot of a hill. Most of these hillsides have caves with household stuff hidden in them. They are a rich field for souvenir hunters. And all marines are souvenir hunters. So immediately two of our boys, instead of resting, started up through the brush, looking for caves and souvenirs. They had gone about 50 yards when one of them yelled, there's a Jap soldier under this bush! We didn't get too excited, for most of us figured he meant a dead Jap. But three or four of the boys got up and went up the hill. A few moments later, somebody yelled again, Hey, here's another one! They're alive and they've got rifles! So the boys went at them in earnest. The Japs were lying under two bushes. They had their hands up over their ears and were pretending to be asleep. The Marines surrounded the bushes and, with guns pointing, they ordered the Japs out. But the Japs were too scared to move. They just lay there, blinking. The average Jap soldier would have come out shooting, but, thank goodness, these were of a different stripe. They were so petrified the Marines had to go into the bushes, lift them by the shoulders, and throw them out in the open. My contribution to the capture consisted of standing to one side and looking as mean as I could. One Jap was small and about 30 years old. The other was just a kid of 16 or 17, but good-sized and well-built. The kid had the rank of superior private, and the other was a corporal. They were real Japanese from Japan, not the Okinawan home guard. They were both trembling all over. The kid's face turned a sickly white. Their hands shook. The muscles in the corporal's jaw were twitching. The kid was so paralyzed he couldn't even understand sign language. We don't know why those two Japs didn't fight. They had good rifles and potato masher hand grenades. They could have stood behind their bushes and heaved grenades into our tightly packed group and got themselves two dozen casualties easily. The Marines took their arms. One Marine tried to direct the corporal in handbook Japanese, but the fellow couldn't understand. The scared kid just stood there, sweating like an ox. I guess he thought he was dead. Finally, we sent them back to the regiment. The Americans soon thereafter encountered stubborn resistance, and only by the rain of small arms fire knew that they had encountered the new defensive line. On May 2nd, as the Army and Marine divisions settled in for what looked like another month of bloody and fruitless assaults, they received two pieces of news. The first was that President Franklin Delano Roosevelt had died. The much-beloved president had been a symbol of the American war effort from the beginning and his loss was a major blow to morale. Then, a week later, a much more joyous second piece of news arrived. Hitler was dead, and the war in Europe was over. However, while this may have brought a smile to some faces, it was not much consolation for the men still fighting on Okinawa. While the Army and Marines prepared to make their next move on the Japanese defenses of the Shiri Line, the 5th Fleet supporting them was fighting for its life against thousands of kamikaze attacks. The fleet had adopted new tactics to try and mitigate the threat, deploying radar-equipped destroyers out farther away from the fleet in order to spot Japanese attacks sooner and give the fleet more time to react. However, the Japanese countered by first destroying these so-called radar pickets before then continuing on to the main force. These radar pickets would take the heaviest losses in terms of ships sunk, as one kamikaze hit was usually enough to sink the small destroyers. The main targets, of course, were the flat tops, as they had proven over and over again that they were the biggest threat to the Japanese Empire. Many carriers were hit by kamikazes off Okinawa. The British carrier HMS Indefatigable was struck by a kamikaze directly on her flight deck. However, because the British had designed their carriers with armored flight decks to protect against bombs in the Stuka-infested Mediterranean, the kamikaze did little more than smash into the deck and shower the surrounding area with debris. 
Within a half an hour, the deck had been cleared and the carrier was ready to launch and retrieve aircraft. The American carriers, though, were not as lucky. They had been designed to carry the maximum number of aircraft possible, and so were not equipped with the space-taking armor on the flight deck. Unlike the Mediterranean, the Pacific was huge, and it was difficult to locate and attack carriers at sea. So the armor was thought unneeded. However, with the 5th Fleet needing to stay near Okinawa, it was much easier for the Japanese to find the carriers, and when the enemy does find you, armor is sometimes more important than armament. There are many harrowing stories from U.S. ships that were struck by kamikazes. Too many to recount here. But one stands out in particular. May 11th, 1945. USS Bunker Hill, flagship of Admiral Mark Mitcher's Task Force 58, is steaming along with dozens of other warships north of Okinawa. Bunker Hill and her sister carriers Essex and Hancock sail with more than 14 other carriers, including other famous carriers such as the Enterprise and Yorktown. The day is sunny with patches of low-lying clouds. As Bunker Hill conducts flight operations in support of the Okinawa invasion, Admiral Mark Mitcher receives a report of a large formation of unknown aircraft coming from the direction of Kyushu. By now, everyone on board knows exactly what that means. Alarms, bells, and sirens accompany thousands of sailors as they sprint along narrow corridors and jump through hatches to reach their battle stations. General Quarters! General Quarters! All hands man your battle stations! Admiral Mitcher flashes a rapid series of orders to the task force, ordering all of the carriers to scramble their available fighters and to direct their combat air patrols to the expected point of contact with the incoming Japanese aircraft. While the pilots of Bunker Hill's air group receive their orders and don their equipment in the ready rooms, crewmen on the flight deck ready over 30 aircraft for takeoff. While all this was going on, the Japanese aircraft closed in on the task force. Only a few minutes after the initial report came through, the kamikazes were upon the task force. AAA fire erupted from thousands of guns across the fleet, filling the sky with puffs of black smoke. American aircraft and flak managed to kill most of the attacking force, and only minor damage was sustained. By now, the aircraft on the flight deck of Bunker Hill were fully fueled and loaded with ammo, and ready for takeoff, and the pilots in the ready rooms were making final preparations before going topside. It was just then, however, when a Japanese Zero emerged from the low clouds and began its suicide dive, directly at the Bunker Hill. The pilot, Sub-Lieutenant Yasunori Saizo was highly skilled and had managed to fly low enough to avoid detection on radar. Then, while his comrades got shot to pieces by the flak, he hid his plane in a patch of clouds and avoided detection by the American gunners and fighters. Now, emerging completely by surprise off Bunker Hill's starboard quarter, he had the Americans right where he wanted them. He barreled his plane toward Bunker Hill. Gunners aboard the ship began opening fire, but it was too late. At 10.05 a.m., Saizo released his 550-pound bomb only a few hundred feet above the carrier at point-blank range. Bunker Hill had no time to dodge. The bomb pierced the flight deck diagonally and passed through the hangar deck before passing through the hull of the ship on the port side and detonating in the sea just off the port quarter, damaging the hull. At about the same time as the bomb's detonation, Saizo's Zero crashed into the aft of the flight deck, right into all of the parked aircraft full of fuel. The explosion of Saizo's plane set fire to the whole group, and the ship was rocked with explosions. Sailors on the flight deck were blown overboard by the explosions as fuel caught fire, and soon the entire aft section was engulfed in flames. Damage control teams quickly went into action, and in seconds, firefighters began dousing the flames with high-pressure fresh water and carbon dioxide foam. However, even as Saizo's plane struck home, yet another Zero emerged from the clouds and began its dive toward Bunker Hill. The plane was piloted by Ensign Ogawa Kiyoshi, who had used the same tactic as Saizo and avoided detection until the last moment. All the guns aboard Bunker Hill that could still fire opened up on Kiyoshi's plane, and at least one 40mm hit was observed on his aircraft. Despite this setback, Kiyoshi maintained his dive, releasing another 550-pound bomb just above the flight deck. The bomb pierced the flight deck beside the island, exploding in the hangar deck just below. The explosion tore a gaping hole in the flight deck and pierced the hangar deck reaching the ready rooms below. Many of the pilots, still inside the ready rooms, were killed in the blast along with dozens of other sailors. At the same moment, Kiyoshi's plane struck the flight deck just below the island, causing yet more fires and enlarging the hole in the flight deck. Yet more damage control teams jumped into action, as now fully half of the ship was on fire. The heat from the fires could be felt everywhere on the ship. Admiral Mitcher was already making preparations to shift his flag from Bunker Hill to another carrier and continue the battle from there. While all this was happening, a third kamikaze, identified as a Judy, began diving toward Bunker Hill. A machine gunner aboard the ship spotted the attacker at close range and managed to take her down. 
Had the kamikaze hit home, it may have spelled the end for Bunker Hill. Not long after the two kamikaze hits that Bunker Hill suffered in less than 30 seconds, Admiral Mitcher transferred over to the destroyer USS English by buoy, and then to the carrier USS Enterprise. Fires raged across the Bunker Hill as the crew desperately scrambled to save their ship. Seeing that the gun mounts on the aft of the ship were cut off from escape by the flames, Captain George A. Seitz gave the order for all those aft of the flames to abandon ship. Only a few men heard the order over the intercom amidst the chaos, and the situation in the aft mounts became very confused. Some men and a couple officers put on life jackets and jumped off the side, falling over 50 feet into the sea below. Most, however, decided to remain aboard and do whatever they could to save the ship. In the hangar deck, crewmen braved literally boiling temperatures as they doused the flames fed by gasoline from the stowed planes. Ammunition began to detonate as the flames reached the belts of bullets for the planes, wounding some crewmen. Far below decks, pilots and crewmen fought their way through the flames to escape certain death in the burning ready rooms. Throughout the ship, small groups of sailors, instead of waiting for orders, took the initiative and did whatever they could to save trapped crewmen, fight the fires, or repair damaged firefighting equipment. Captain Seitz personally went below decks to address the confusion, making his way back to restore order in the aft gun mounts. Sailors in the engine rooms, directly below the flames on the flight deck, bravely remained at their stations, despite the encroaching flames, and managed to keep the ship sailing at 20 knots, even as black smoke and immense heat made its way down into the bowels of the ship. Some men in the engine rooms remained at their stations for over 19 hours. The remaining guns continued to unleash a deadly barrage on the Japanese planes, as over the course of the rest of the day, kamikaze after kamikaze tried to strike the finishing blow on the wounded ship. The pilots of the Marine Squadron, as well as some of the Navy pilots from the Combat Air Patrol, flew overhead watching their ship, unable to help, before finally landing on other nearby carriers once they ran critically low on fuel. As crewmen desperately fought the fires below decks, the battle to douse the flames on the flight deck was reaching a critical stage. Driven back by the heat and volume of the flames, firemen could barely contain the fire, let alone extinguish it. Multiple destroyers and supply ships, seeing the desperate situation, came up alongside Bunker Hill and used long-range fire hoses to help those on board. With the help of half a dozen ships, millions of gallons of water, and hundreds of brave crewmen on deck, the flames were finally put out by early evening. With her flight deck beyond repair, nearly a quarter of her crew dead, and another quarter badly wounded, Bunker Hill was no longer fit for combat. Escorted by a small group of destroyers, she left the battle zone, and moored at Ulithi Atoll for some crucial repairs before going on to Hawaii, and then Oregon, where she would undergo dry dock repairs. The Navy was told by the repair workers that she would be in dry dock until September, which was not great for the Navy, but did mean she would be back in service just in time to once again go back into the fray on November 1st with the invasion of Kyushu. The USS Bunker Hill was just one of the over 300 ships damaged by kamikazes during the battle for Okinawa, and she was one of the lucky ones. Nine ships, for the most part picket destroyers, were sunk during the battle. Over the course of the almost three months of fighting, 4,900 American sailors were killed, with another 4,800 wounded, almost all because of the kamikaze. As it would turn out, the kamikaze would be the deadliest threat ever faced by the U.S. Navy, the naval battles off Okinawa gaining the dubious honor of being the deadliest battle ever fought by the U.S. Navy. The U.S. Fifth Fleet would gain the nickname the Fleet That Came to Stay for their tenacity and stubborn determination that they demonstrated in staying on station in the kamikaze-infested waters off Okinawa. On the same day that the USS Bunker Hill was struck, May 11, 1945, General Buckner and the ground forces on Okinawa launched their offensive against the Shiri Line. The attack was covered by a creeping barrage of American artillery, and attack aircraft from the carriers suppressed Japanese defenses as the infantry and tanks advanced. The Marines took up position on the American right flank, attacking Japanese defenses on the western side of the island, like the triangular set of hills guarding the coastal plain, while the Army divisions took up positions on the American left, attacking Conical Hill on the eastern side of the island. In the center of the line, both the Marines and Army would work together to take the cliff-covered ridge that would be nicknamed Hacksaw Ridge by the GIs. As the offensive began, it would mark the beginning of ten days of brutal combat. The first major blow the Americans struck was in the east, on Conical Hill. Rising 476 feet from the ocean, with ridges extending outward from it in all directions, the 1,000 Japanese defenders had an excellent position. The Americans advanced methodically toward the peak, moving along the ridges that led to the top. The Japanese soldiers ambushed them at every turn, appearing from hidden tunnel entrances behind the Americans or on the flanks, harassing them as they advanced. 
The GIs responded in turn with a shower of grenades and a thorough dousing of the tunnel entrances with flamethrowers, burning alive any Japanese within a hundred feet of the entrance as the flames were channeled down the narrow corridors. After days of intense close-quarters fighting, the Americans had cleared out the Japanese defenders and declared Conical Hill secure on May 13th. On the American right, meanwhile, the Marines attacked the triangular set of hills guarding Okinawa's western coastal plain. The Marines decided to try and capture the closest hill, nicknamed Sugarloaf, in order to use it as a base from which to attack the remaining two. The Marines tried at first to simply storm Sugarloaf, but the combined firepower of the three hills repulsed them with heavy loss. Next, they tried advancing from behind the cover of Sherman tanks, the infantry hiding behind them as the Shermans advanced guns blazing. Japanese anti-tank guns quickly put an end to that idea, as multiple Shermans were destroyed in the first attack alone. Finally, the Marines decided to launch a coordinated attack on all three hills at once. A group of Marines attacked Half Moon and Horseshoe Ridges, the nicknames for the ridges behind Sugarloaf, as a feint in order to draw the Japanese fire away from the main attack on Sugarloaf itself. A company of Marines, using Sherman tanks for cover, advanced toward the right flank of Sugarloaf. As they began scaling the hill, the Japanese began targeting them with every gun they had, and in so doing, locked themselves into tunnel vision, preventing them from seeing a group of 80 men scaling the forward face of the ridge. Soon, those Marines had reached the summit, and began slaughtering the Japanese at the crest. With the Japanese distracted, the Marines on the right flank advanced rapidly up to join their comrades at the top. By the end of the day, May 17th, all three hills had been taken. In the center, the fight for Hacksaw Ridge closely resembled the fighting for Kakazu Ridge the month prior. Army and Marine Corps units scaled the ridge, either navigating the steep and rocky slopes or scaling the cliffs using rope nets. The fighting raged back and forth across the crest of the ridge, Japanese and American soldiers tossing grenades, rocks, and anything they could find atop the ridge at each other while calling in artillery and mortar support. The Marines and Army troops often tried to attack at night in order to try and surprise the defenders, but this rarely worked, and battles in the pitch-black Okinawa night raged, with soldiers aiming only at the flashes of light caused by the firing of weapons. On one such attack, a company of Army soldiers was ambushed and took heavy losses before retreating back down the ridge, leaving hundreds of wounded atop the ridge. One of the company's medics, Private Desmond Doss, stayed atop the ridge, lowering wounded down to safety all night, saving as many as a hundred soldiers from certain death should the Japanese have found them. After weeks of fighting, Hacksaw Ridge was taken by late May. Days later, the Japanese abandoned the Shiri Line, retreating farther south. As the Americans advanced past the Shiri Line into the densely populated south of Okinawa, they found the corpses of tens of thousands of civilians who had starved to death or been caught in the crossfire. While the Japanese army had stockpiled years' worth of supplies, they were for army personnel only, and many thousands of Okinawans starved as a result. The Marines cautiously advanced through the ruins of Naha, Okinawa's capital city. Barely a building was left standing after the artillery barrages and bombing by naval aircraft. As June began, the Japanese defense was on its last legs. Most of the defenders had been killed, those remaining holed up in the hills along the southern coast of the island. General Buckner, leading from the front, often came within a few hundred yards of the front line to encourage his troops and to observe the situation. On one such occasion, on June 18th, General Buckner was observing a Japanese-held hill when he was shot by a Japanese sniper and killed. A Brigadier General, Simon Boulevard Buckner would be the highest-ranking American casualty of World War II. Four days later, on June 22, 1945, Okinawa was declared secure. Okinawa would be the bloodiest single battle of the Pacific War. The American casualties were enormous. 12,520 men killed in action, with another 6 to 8,000 dying of disease and other causes. On top of that, another 50,000 men were wounded. The Japanese casualties were even worse. Almost the entirety of the defending force, 77,000 of them, were dead, with only a few hundred of them being captured, almost all of those being wounded already. On top of the soldiers, over 100,000 civilians, out of only 300,000 total, died as a result. Unlike the islands before, Okinawa was Japan, and afterward, everyone on both sides knew what fighting in mainland Japan would look like. It would be a bloody slog in which few were simply wounded, a battle in which the line between civilian and combatant would be blurred beyond recognition. There would be no heroes, only survivors. Should an invasion come to pass, Japan would look like Okinawa, covered in bodies from stem to stern. Before victory could be achieved, thousands, 
Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions would die. Ernie Pyle reflected on the dead in one of his reports he wrote before going ashore on Okinawa. Last summer, I wrote that I hoped the end of the war could be a gigantic relief, but not an elation. In the joyousness of high spirits, it is so easy for us to forget the dead. Those who are gone would not wish themselves to be a millstone of gloom around our necks. But there are so many of the living who have had burned into their brains forever the unnatural sight of cold, dead men scattered over the hillsides and in the ditches along the high rows of hedge throughout the world. Dead men by mass production, in one country after another, month after month and year after year. Dead men in winter and dead men in summer. Dead men in such familiar promiscuity that they become monotonous. Dead men in such monstrous infinity that you come almost to hate them. Those are the things that you at home need not even try to understand. To you at home they are columns of figures, or he is a near one who went away and just didn't come back. You didn't see him lying so grotesque and pasty beside the gravel road in France. We saw him. Saw him by the multiple thousands. That's the difference. Pyle could not have known it as he wrote this report, but a few days later he would join them, lying by the side of a muddy road on Ieshima, an island just off the coast of Okinawa. While inspecting the island as part of his research, his jeep was fired upon by a Japanese machine gunner. Pyle and the men inside jumped from the jeep and ran for cover. Pyle hid in a ditch beside the road. After the firing ceased, Pyle lifted up his head in order to get a better look, only to catch a bullet from the gunner's next burst directly in his left temple. Like the men he saw in France, Pyle too would lie in the mud along the side of a gravel road. He would become one of the most famous casualties of the bloodiest battle of the Pacific War, Okinawa. This report of his, which you just heard, never finished, was found on his corpse. That's all for this episode of LeMay's Inferno on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. I've been your host, Carter McNish. Join us next time as we discuss the continued bombing campaign against Japan by LeMay and the Superforts, the American submarine blockade on Japan, and the plan for the American invasion of Japan, appropriately named Operation Downfall. Love can never last, and when it's past.